Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers Radio, where we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not converting. I am hoping that everybody had a good week. We had some storms here, which kind of threw everything off for a while, but everything seems to be fine again. So I'm happy to hear that. I hope all is well with you. Today we're going to continue with um, our White Identity Politics series. Um, Today is part two. And we will be talking about whiteness. So basically, how white folks became white and how whiteness um, became a commodity, if you will. And so, and what I mean by that is there's value to being white. So um, it's real interesting, but it was a number of things that happened this week. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that about what's been going on. Um, One of the stories that really got my attention this week was the young man with the hashtag, I stand with Ahmed, and how conservatives have just been losing their freaking minds because people are standing behind that young man, you know, who was, you know, basically called a terrorist in his own school, his own teacher. And this is a class that he had been going to, and um, it's just, and this is his teacher, you know, and he was just bringing that to show off to his teacher, and then all of a sudden now, you know, he, he has a bomb, really? And I'm just trying to understand the mindset of these people. Do they not understand the, you know, what could happen to that young man? You know, it's like, it's like I don't know. I'm, like, looking at it, and he's a young man. He's an inventor. He's, you know, engineering major or want to be when he goes to college. And, you know, and I'm sorry. I just don't see how that teacher thought it was a bomb. You know, so I I just wonder if it was the teacher or was it some of the kids in the class that would complain to the teacher. Either way it goes, um, they overreacted in that particular situation, and the response to him has been absolutely outstanding. I know uh, Microsoft sent him a care package, and you couldn't peel the smile off of his face. You know, <laughs> you know, they sent him some nice stuff. I mean, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, told him that he can come to Facebook and take a tour, you know, and I, I believe Twitter offered him an internship, and MIT told him that he was one of the people, he, you know, that, that they would have a slot for him. They wanted him to come and check out the campus because that's, you know, where he wants to go to school and a number of other, you know, things 
went well for that young man, and I was just really happy for him. Somebody offered him a $250,000 scholarship, you know, which is absolutely amazing. So now his college is pretty much paid for. I mean, and he may not even, the way that I see this, the $250,000 scholarship money that was offered to him, that's just going to be money to help him get on his feet when he graduates, and especially with interest accruing, you know, because I believe that some of these Ivy Leagues, particularly MIT, they're going to give him a full ride. And so, you know, I'm just sitting here, and, you know, what they 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 were trying to basically turn that young man into a villain, but it all worked out to his benefit. So I'm really, really happy to hear that. Hey, Raina. Hey, what's going on? Hey, it's Sunday, Sunday morning, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So you said five and six. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just talking about um, Ahmed Muhammad. The young man that you know, yeah, school, yeah. And so now the school is saying that he can come back, and he's like, I don't think so. So you know, he's looking for another high school, and you know, I can't wait to see the progress in that because you know, I'm waiting to see the other high school. I bet you they they will give him the red carpet treatment. But I'm glad for that young man. I posted an article that talked about. Um, Mr. Muhammad there, and how some Muslims did not want him to dismiss his blackness or his race. And it's just, it was really interesting because when I saw him speak about it, he he did say it was because of his race and um, his religion. So he was very, very much aware of that. So um, it was just interesting watching people, you know, important people like Bristol Palin, you know, blog telling President Obama to stay out of it because this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why we have racial strife in this, you know, in, in America. And I'm just sitting there. There was a number of conservatives that said the same thing. And what I'm trying to understand is that these people, just from what I'm gathering, they feel that the racism problem will go away if we just don't talk about it. I mean, is that what you're getting from this right now? I mean, that's pretty much how it's always been, though. I mean, they, right. you know, they, the way the white supremacy works is, you know, they don't want you to, you know, to challenge it. You know, if you don't talk about it, if you don't talk about the racism and the oppression that's, you know, what's going on within the system, then it doesn't exist, Right. Correct. See, wow. So, yeah, it's just, it's amazing because I'm not sure about you guys, but I know in my life, in my experience, you know, when an incident would happen, they do, they want you to be quiet about it. What do they call it? Being professional, you know, (laughs) And, um, and not to talk about what happened. And then that gives them the right to just kind of ignore it or to try to paint you as being disgruntled because of what happened. And so it's just interesting um, how all of that works out. I know we have the EEOC in this country, but it's relatively weak. And even with your employee relations boards, you know, that most 
employers have. They want you to take it there first, so that way they can try to put together a plan to basically either get rid of you or to create a position to put you in so that you will ultimately fail. So it's just it's real interesting how all of that worked out. How's your weekend going so far, Raina? Going okay. Um, all right. I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, we should talk about it last year. So. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Okay, so, yeah. No, I was just saying hi to you this morning. And for those of <laughs> you that are not, huh? I said, I said that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So you see how you are? All right, so. You know, I'm not going to give a long monologue today um, because I had some people that were trying to call in last week. So I want to give people an opportunity to call in. Our telephone number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And if you want to speak with us, press 1. You can also Skype into the show, go to the top of the page, and you will see a big blue S button. So you click that and you're able to Skype in. And so, you know, we'll take some calls today. Um, <laughs> hi, Jim Bob. I remember you from last week, Jim Bob. But um, it's just really interesting. Last week I was talking about um, basically how white people have profited from being white. And so I'm going to wait before we go into it, because there's a couple of things I want to talk about besides Mr. Ahmed Muhammad. I would like to congratulate our very own, well, our very own Jen, Jennifer Taylor. She is now engaged to Christopher Kimball, so yay! yay. We're excited. For- yeah. <laughs> All right, Jen. Go, Jen, Jen. So, you know, we are very excited for her, and we can't wait because we're going to have our strawberry and pineapple cake. I don't know what the rest of y'all eat, but we're having strawberries and pineapples over here. So, so, you know, I'm really, really happy for her, you know. You know, she's extremely deserving of that. So I wanted to mention that today and also, you know, another set of good news for us on this side. Raina is currently in her Ph.D. program. Yay! Congratulations, yeah. Raina. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell the people what you're doing besides all the seminars and all the TA. And what, what do you major, I mean, what will you be getting your Ph.D. in? Um, biological sciences. So. Um, it's just a gen- yeah, it's just a general biology degree. Um, but I, uh, <clears throat> it, it it will provide some advantages. Um, there are advantages to having a general biology background. You can kind of move around a little bit. So, yep, excellent, huh? excellent. So, will you be mm-hmm. writing a dissertation or taking comps? Uh, well, you take comps to get can uh, to get into candidacy, and then you have to um, write a dissertation to um, to earn your degree. So um, I'm not quite I'm not like I got at least another year before I um, I apply for candidacy. But yeah. yeah, excellent. Well, thank you very kindly, Dr. Ray. 
you know. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> So <laughs> that's her story, and she's sticking with it, right? Yeah, not yet, not yet. But we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get there. So. There you go, there you go. So you know, I'm just gonna run off a couple of names of books um, that you know we've taken some of the material for. I'm still not done talking about a few things, but I just wanted to you know run off the name of the book that we took some material from last week. And some material will be coming from it this week as well. And so the name of the book is The Possessive Investment in Whiteness from Identity Politics. And it was written by George Lipsitz, L-I-P-S-I-T-Z, George Lipsitz. And so that's one of the books that we'll be taking information from. Um, Another book, you know, it's actually – I gathered a lot of information from a lot of different people, but The History of White People is another book that uh, I'm taking some information from um, for today's show. And so, you know, we just kind of want to let you guys know where some of the reference material is coming from so that people won't be confused over there. Um, And so it's just a number of books um, I have working towards whiteness, um, how America, America's immigrants became white, um, how Jews became white folk, and what that says about America. Um, you know, just all of these things. You know, if you want to go out, you can go and look some of this information up. And with the Google Books, you know, they let you read a nice amount of information from a lot of these books. So I just say go and Check it out, and if you go to Amazon or Half.com or, or a, number, a number of those stores, you can get these books for pennies on a dollar. Sometimes I just get a book for a penny, sometimes a dollar, sometimes four or five dollars. You know, most of the time the shipping costs more than a book, so I kind of search around for um, a lot of these things. So I say go for it, and you'll find a lot of information, as a matter of fact, I will post a video um, after the show from Neil Irvin Painter, The History of White People. And you can find it yourself on YouTube. I was just going to post it after the show so that you all will have an idea of what's out there and what's what's happening and how all of this came to be because I think it's important. But it was a couple other things in the news that I actually wanted to get to today and... You know, it's, it's just it's been interesting. I posted an article a couple of days ago, and the title of the article is Why the Modern Civil Rights Movement Keeps Religious Leaders at Arm's Length. And again, Why the Modern Civil Rights Movement Keeps Religious Leaders at Arm's Length. And this was in a Washington Post. And it was written by, oh, yeah, I'm getting ready to kill his name, Rahil Testamerium. Okay, so I'll spell it. R-A-H-I-E-L, Rahil. And the last name last name is T-E-S-F-A-M-A-R-I-A-M. And so... Testamerium? Testamerium, um, yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, Testamerium. So yeah, <laughs> they can go and find, a, you know, the article. But it was a very good article, and... 
I, of course, I agree with them for not having people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, you know, center themselves in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement. I agree with them pushing them to the side. And, you know, what's interesting is Jamal Bryant from, you know, Raina's neck of the woods up there in Maryland, he is constantly trying to throw himself in the middle of this, you know, because mm-hmm. I guess he wants to be the new Martin Luther King Jr. So and he I find it that he's running for Congress. Exactly. How about that, guys? Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah, baby, you got that right. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the that's the cat. <laughs> Oh, God, why are you making noise? Thank you. Oh, that's too funny. Well, I always said the cat sounded like Davy, so there you go. Yeah, they do. Oh, thank you. Um, I'll be right with you. Hold on one second, Kim. I'll be right with you. Okay. But, um, yeah, so I just thought it was interesting, you know, because, like I said, Jamal Bryant is constantly trying to throw himself in the middle of what's happening with these protests, especially the ones in Baltimore there. And him and Ayala Van Zandt, they were there when the, you know, the activists, the young people in Baltimore, you know, when they said no more. And um, Ayala Van Zandt, was sitting there basically chastising them, telling them to go home, just like Jesse and Al told people in Ferguson to go home and to pray about it, if you will. But, you know, what's so interesting is, you know, now I don't watch a lot of television at all, you know, but, you know, I like my little golden girls or what have you. But I saw a commercial for a youngless, you know, program on Oprah's network and, you know, she was talking about, you know, the different things that she was going to, you know, have on the show. And she mentioned Black Lives Matter. And so, of course, I went out to Google and looked some information up. And she was stating that she would love to do a fix, you know, fix my life or fix your life to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, how she was a little confused because, you know, people, we don't have leaders, if you will. You know, in their eyes, there are no leaders to this. And and basically, I guess they want us to center, you know, some person of color. And more than likely, they want us to put a black man in the front and how she had some advice for them. And, you know, I'm sitting here and, you know, I'm trying to be nice, you know, about the situation and what she's saying, but wasn't she making soap and candles five, six years ago and basically went on Oprah's show to beg her for another chance, got on her knees begging for another chance. And I'm like, I'm just looking at the whole situation, and it's like, you know, you're pointing the finger at these. See, the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of these older people, you know, and I'm on the cusp of being in that particular generation, but I'm not because, you know, I was born right there 
between the two generations, and I kind of identify with the younger generation a little bit more. But, you know, what's interesting is you have these older people, and when they can't define you or put you in a box, then they get extremely frustrated. And, you know, what's what's happening here, as far as some of these older people are concerned, they're upset because the young people aren't listening to them, per se, because they feel like they have all the answers. But, see, this is my question to them. If you have all the answers and you know how to do all of these things and, you know, get us our liberation from this oppressive, you know, you know, racist systemic system, why haven't you done it? And why do you feel that now is the time for you to, you know, project these skills onto what we're doing? Why didn't you do it beforehand? Exactly. We were oppressed then, too. So, you know, Yama, you want to fix somebody's life, you probably, because it seems like, you know, you're getting the same big head you got the last time. You need to rethink some things, Yama. You couldn't even fix your own life before you begged Oprah for another chance. But you can fix our lives, really? You can fix this problem? Why haven't you done it before, Yala? So, you know, here's another person that's trying to capitalize on, you know, what's currently happening with the young activists in this country, you know, from the very beginning. I have been saying older people... Move out the way. Let these young people lead. You give them advice. You can make donations, you know, because they do need some guidance in certain regards, and that's welcome. Trust me, they welcome that. But, you know, they, they're they not doing this. You know, it's, they don't need your validation. I guess that's the nicest way I can put that. Let them do what they're trying to do. So, yeah, you know, this is actually a pretty good article, again, why the modern civil rights movement keeps religious leaders at arm's length. And so, you know, again, we talked about when Jesse and Al went down to Ferguson and how they were asking for donations while telling these people to go home and, you know, to pray about the situation. And it's just interesting because, you know, we've had this conversation about (laughs) – you know, um, in situations like that, prayer is not the answer. You know, prayer, you know, for those that are spiritual, I guess prayer is part of the equation for you. You know, but the thing is, is that all the prayers, you know, the prayers that you're offering up now, the prayers that are for, you know, our, our ancestors offered up, you know, that's enough prayers. You know, why isn't it fixed? You know, and so I'm not saying not to pray. You know, if that gives you peace, fine. Do that, but we need action, and that's you know what you're seeing all across this country, with you know you have these people disrupting not only you know the rallies for the people that are running for president, but they're they're disrupting you know city meetings and and just a number of things you know it, here in Chicago, you know every month when the Chicago Police Department. Have, have you know they have their meetings, Black Lives Matter Chicago, the Chicago Light Brigade, um, Project Nia, Black Youth Project 100, and a number of other um, 
grassroots organizations here, they show up every month and they shut it down. They shut down Mayor Rahm Emanuel, you know, his his meeting, talking about the budget. So, you know, they're not getting the media coverage, and I talked about this quite a bit last week um, when we had a caller, you know, Mr. Warren called in, and, you know, he was asking some questions, and, you know, I gave that answer, but I felt the need to reiterate it today because this is happening all across the country, not just in Chicago, not just in Ferguson, not just in Baltimore. It's happening all across the country, but they're trying to basically squash these stories so that, you know, they can try to downplay Black Lives Matter. You know, and you're hearing all of these false stories about how Black Lives Matter is is creating an environment in which there is a quote-unquote war on cops. That is untrue. And that has been disputed, and, and, and the information, the statistics show that that is not the case. And for the police departments and these conservatives to be out here saying this, they're putting these activists in a very precarious situation. And we need for you guys to pay attention to that because, again, with some of these buzzwords or these triggers, you know, that they're putting out there, they know that they have some people that are loose cannons that are going to go out there and, and possibly hurt somebody. And that's not the goal, and it's not cool. And so the whole thing about it is they're trying to shut this movement down. You need to be asking yourselves why. Why? So earlier this week they met with, they being Black Lives Matter, they met with Valerie Jarrett as well as Bernie Sanders. And so there were some developments out of that. You know, they had their talks. So just to kind of give you an update as to what was happening with them this week, but this article is absolutely fantastic, and this is why you see people wearing T-shirts saying, this is not your your mother's civil rights movement. They're doing things a little bit differently. And, you know, they're not allowing these, you know, black political elites to dictate to them. You know, because when they had that march on Washington last year that Al Sharpton called himself leading, they told the young protesters from Ferguson that they would be able to speak. And so what they did, you know, Al Sharpton's crew, is they pushed the Ferguson protesters and activists to the back of the march. And they didn't have any time, you know, slotted for them. So what did they do? They 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 jumped the stage, and they took the mic, which was right. Because you have people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson that are just itching to be in front of, you know, any type of movement, any type of progressive, you know, actions happening, you know, with people of color in this country, and, you know, add you know, Yala Van Zandt and Jamal Bryant and a number of other preachers. Trust me, they're trying. You know, so, I mean, Raina, um, yeah, I'm just sitting back and I'm looking because, um, yeah, I'm just looking at all of this and what's happening and why people are confused. And if you go back through history and you look up SNCC and Diane Nash, 
and, you know, Elaine Brown, not Elaine Brown, I'm sorry, um, I can't, Ella Baker, and how they, you know, put together Snake, and it was a number of other people. I just named a couple of folks. It was a lot more. But basically, you know, it was the young students, the young activists out there, and there was no particular leader. And one of the reasons for that is because of some of the clashes that in the, in the, in the issue with the civil rights movement, how it became centered around Martin Luther King and how a lot of the, you know, black feminist or black woman issues weren't being addressed. So it was a lot of patriarchy in there as well. And, you know, the same thing with the black power movement. There was a lot of misogyny and, and patriarchy in that particular movement as well. So, again, go out, do some reading, and see what's happening out here, because I'm just looking at it. And what they're doing to the Black Lives Matter movement is the same thing they did to the Black Power movement with the Black Panthers and you had the Gray Panthers, the Brown Berets, the Young Lords, which was the Chicano-Latino version of it. Ironically, Geraldo Rivera was their lawyer in New York. But, um, yeah, you know, I encourage you guys to go out there and read. And, again, you know, we're seeing the progress of this particular movement. As I stated before, it definitely is in its infancy. So, again, go out and look up Project Zero, which is the platform that they put together to, um, you know, talk about, you know, the policies that they want to have changed. All right, I see we have a caller, so let's pull them into the conversation before we move on. So area code 678. May we ask who's calling and what is your question? Hi, my name is Dr. Keisha Pett. Hi, Doctor, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? Hey, we're good. We're good. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, may we ask what you call to add to the conversation here? Yes, um, we wanted to add, um, we have a, a organization called the New Black Codes, and what we we believe that we need to do to change things is We've done the, all the marching in the past years, and it and it a lot of times doesn't come out to anything. So what we believe that we need to do is what we believe we need to do is we need to create community and power in our in each individual. Because what ends up happening is they will continue to pick on us if we're not wealthy. They don't pick on poor people. They don't pick on they don't pick on the communities that that band together. When and whenever anything happens to the Jewish community, if somebody says something on TV, the Jewish community shuts it down because they have that exactly. power. Right. So what what we have done with our organization is we've basically um, made a platform that allows the our community to improve their health, improve their wealth, improve their family dynamic, change their mindset. So that way we can, as a community, we can improve and empower each other and not just be picked on, etc. So what we have done is we believe we can focus our wealth. Then the way we, we have that is we've partnered up with different um, companies 
that we we already spend that $1.1 trillion every year. And actually, in 2017, it's showing that we'll spend $1.3 trillion. So what we we're doing is, instead of that money just or that money that little bit of that money or even none at all being going going to the black community we have it where if you go on our site and you click on those links for those companies those companies agree to give us back a portion of that money that is spent at their company uh to us and what we're going to do with that that money is we're going to create a black-owned credit union so that the redlining that we have to deal with um, is not occurring. We've also um, planned to fund businesses so we can support black-owned businesses. So we're not relying on 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 getting um, we're not just relying on getting jobs from everyone else. We can hire each other and we can support each other and build up our community. Um, and we plan to do as much as we can so that the black community can improve. That is excellent. That is excellent. What's the name of your program again? If you can type it in as thenewblackcodes.com. Okay, thenewblackcodes.com. And exactly. I'm going to definitely um, put that link out later on today when I – some of the other links that I have, but let me ask you, what was your inspiration for creating this particular program? And how long has it wow. been in practice? Okay. Well, we launched the site um, the end of August we launched it, but we were, we were just like you guys. We, we were kind of tired of being picked on. We've seen all different types of, all the media where police are basically targeting us, and it was almost mm-hmm. like it's kind of like enough is enough. And then once we started looking at the statistics, showing that we die four years earlier than other communities, that we um, our wealth assets are eleven thousand compared to you know the other communities that is over one hundred and forty thousand, it, it mm-hmm. became apparent we had to do something to to personally develop our um, our community. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, something that you said earlier is the absolute truth. Unfortunately, in our community, when we spend money, it's not, you know, circulated within, you know, um, within our community a number of times. Mm-hmm. We go and spend it outside the community, whereas other right. cultures, well, that money is spent in their own community and it circulates, you know, a number of times before it leaves that community. So, I mean, this is excellent. This is excellent. I mean, so... In addition to you know um, you know you are also you all seeing the situation and knowing that um, you know there is a better way, you know I guess my question for you guys is more on the political side. I mean, how has the response been? You know, have you had anybody reach out to you guys? And the reason why I'm asking this is because earlier when I was talking about people like. Jamal Bryant and Al and Jesse and all of them is like they have been going out of their way to try to co-opt a lot of these movements, and I hope that you all don't have that particular issue. But I know with um, some of these programs, you know, that they have out here, that information isn't getting out. But I'm glad that you called in. But I mean, but you all haven't had any major difficulties. You haven't had people trying to co-opt what you're doing yet, have you? No, no, we haven't yet. Uh, at this point, yeah, we just got started, so yeah. yeah but we so do we have, have a website. 
we do have a video on our website that I encourage everyone to um, take a look at. When you go on the home page, it, it's right on the right hand side. The most it shows the most important video black people will ever see. And we do encourage everyone. It's, it's not a super long video. It'll it'll change your thinking. It'll get you motivated and and actually doing action, not just you know listening or or any of that. Right, exactly, because we need people out there that, you know, are actually on the ground doing some work. Um, you need people to contribute, whether it's financially or, you know, um, it can just be a number of things that people can do. And one thing that they can do as far as social media is concerned, you know, pass this information around so that others right. will know about it and that others can, you know, reach out to you guys and, you know, kind of help you with some of the work that's needed because, you know, we should be contacting basically all of these, you know, corporations because one of the issues that I've discussed on the show in the past is, again, with the prison industrial complex, you have these, you know, imprisoned men and women working for a lot of these larger corporations doing customer service, telemarketing, bill collection, just a number of things while they're in jail making basically no money. But these same companies will not hire them when, right. you know, they're released from the penal system. And I also exactly. believe that we need to put some pressure on these corporations in that regard as well, because if they were good enough to work for you when they were in prison, why aren't they good enough to work for you when they are released? They've already shown. And not just that, that and not just that, Kim, and they're also using them beyond those, those uh, traditional uh, sort of jobs. They're taking them, they're making cheeses now, so, like, places yeah. like Whole Foods and stuff like that are, like, you know, that are selling you artisanal cheese at, like, $20 yeah. a wheel. They're, they're actually having that manufactured by inmates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, some some inmates are actually, you know, running fish farms, you know, mm-hmm. right, and all other kinds of things. And they can't get jobs at, like, these types of facilities outside. You know, but it's also how these companies are able to reduce their prices, right? So they can maximize profits. Yeah, mm-hmm. but corporations—I don't want to interrupt—but the corporations are designed to to make money, so they're not looking out for us. So what mm-hmm. we have to do form our own corporations, and that's why we the reason we created New Black Co. So that way we can help help change our mindset and get people to have a business savvy, so we could support each other because we can't rely on them. They're not going to, they, they, I mean, they've proven they're, they're not going to do anything. And we could put all the pressure we want, but um, we right. have to be able to support each other. And that, the way that starts is us creating that wealth through, if, um, yeah. doing the I, I mean, I agree with you. And then creating I, businesses. I agree with you. I agree with you, but I think um, that, that's only part of the picture. So, yes, creating businesses and creating wealth within the black community is, is definitely one area that we have to improve in. But in order to make sure that those that, those that we assist in, in getting their own companies started don't take advantage of members of our community is to make sure that these sorts of labor issues that these sort of corporate corruption issues are also addressed on the on the main on the large stage, you know, because 
there are, I mean, just to be honest with us, you know, you know, we're talking on the phone, you know, black people aren't immune to oppressing one another. So there has to be an ethic that we, that we also put forth an ethic that is, is based in or grounded in, in the human rights and labor rights. And if it's not grounded in that, then we can't move forward. But I understand what you're saying and I admire what you're doing. Right. Um, well, that's that's the hard part about business. I have my own business, and I literally will hire whoever I, I literally hire whoever I want. And that's what those corporations do. And it's, it's sad right. that that you know that's the case, but that's why we just believe that we should create our own businesses, so we won't have to worry about. It. And it's not going to be anything overnight. This is all. This is all going to take time. I mean, we mm-hmm. have a couple black owners out there, but we need more. We 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 need. To lay the foundation, and it might be 200, 300 years from now. Who knows? Before it gets to the point where we're not relying on them to hire our um, our family and our friends, etc. Where we're going to be able to say, "Hey, I have a job for you. If you got fired, hey, I I can I can handle that." Where we actually support each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I actually have some, you know, an idea just popped into my head as, you know, the three of us were speaking. So, Dr. Tisha, do you mind, um, how can we contact you? Do you have an email address on the newblackcoach.com site that we can contact yes, you? Sure. It's the newblackcoach at gmail.com. Okay, so the newblackcoach at gmail.com. All right, That's well, correct. my name is Kimberly. Bill. My name is Kimberly Bill, and you'll be getting an email from me, actually, um, you know, because this this sounds like a great program, and I have some questions, some more questions for you, but I want to go over the site and see, you know, what's happening there. But we congratulate you. We definitely yeah, congratulate definitely. you and salute you because, you know, this is a step in the right direction. And then, as you just stated a minute ago, you know, when people are terminated or rift from their jobs or they're just coming out of the system and having a hard time, you know, um, you know, basically getting employment, which, you know, is just absolutely horrible. You know, we're starting to see a lot of changes. We're starting to see people um, protest that little box on the application asking whether or not you've been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor. And so people are rallying against that as well, and um, and also credit rep- credit checks on applications too. So I mean, they're just trying to put everything in place to you know um, not hire certain segments of society. But this is excellent, you know. And you guys, you just launched in August, so we got to have you back, Dr. Tisha. All right, great. Well, we do appreciate you guys listening, and thank you for uh, having us on today. We love your show. Yes. Yes, and we'll we'll be bringing you back so that we can talk about Thank a little you. bit more in depth about you know what you're doing there. So for those of you that are listening, the website is thenewblackcodes.com. Again, thenewblackcodes.com, and you know take you through a history lesson. You know the black codes back then, basically was like Jim Crow. You know uh, certain. Jobs um, were not available to people of color, you know, again, oppressive, repressive politics. And, you know, it's just interesting because, you know, a lot of people 
think that this is something new. It's always been there. They just threw a little sugar on top, you know, but it's it's been there, and it's still there now. And so, again, wow, this is great, you know, Dr. Keisha and other people out there. If you have your own um, programs that you're working on and you want us to present it to the people, please come on board, you know, and the information is out there. So, again, like I was talking earlier about Project Zero, Go and look that up as well. So, Dr. Keisha, is there anything else you would like to add to this conversation before we let you go? Nope. Uh, that said, we do look forward to hearing from you. Fantastic, fantastic. So I'm going to put you on mute here. But that is great, Reyna. Yeah, that is great. I think so. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, and, yeah, you know, so those of you out there that are doing work, real work, you know, let us know, you know, and we'll be happy to feature you. We'll be happy to talk to you about your project, and this is just fantastic. So, yay! <laughs> you know, I'm really happy to hear about that. So, all right, you know, but, yeah, just speaking about that, what I was thinking about when Dr. Keisha was talking there was, did you see that article in Georgia, they're starting a charter school for prisoners? Mm-mm. I didn't see that. Yeah. I was um I I I read a number of articles this week. Um, I read I read part of Tanihisi Coates' article, but I wanted to make sure that I had time to really look at that one. Um, and really and really appreciate it because I I like his writing. Um, but exactly. no, I and didn't see all- that other one. Oh, okay. Yeah, that article that he wrote is excellent. I need to read it completely through as well. But I tagged you on my wall on another article, which, you know, kind of talks about that article and goes a little bit more in depth. And it has some rebuttals, and I'll find it. I'll inbox it to you later. But, um, no, basically it was an article that was on, you know, AJC, Atlanta Journal-Constitution website, and it says, mm-hmm. Georgia opens first prison charter school. And I mean, well, it's not, I wouldn't actually, okay, so I'm anti-charter school, but (laughs) certainly, you know, education for people who are incarcerated is, uh, it's preferable to to having none, so. (laughs) Excellent. And they've hired about 250 educators, administrators, and other staffers to teach the prisoners. And so far, 100 inmates have signed up for the courses, and they've already awarded 19 high school diplomas, you know, in their pilot program. Yeah, you know, and, you know, what's interesting, and going back to Dr. Keisha there, it was a young man that came out of the prison system, and he saw in prison how it was hard for the inmates to reach out and talk to their families with, you know, with a high cost of, you know, making phone calls because, you know, that's one of the prohibitive, you know, measures there that is too expensive really to make phone calls. And if they reverse the charges, you know, the people at home have to pay these exorbitant prices, right? And Mm -hmm. so he developed a software program, whereas it's kind of like, you know, Skype. And he developed a program for the prison system. So once he got out and developed that program, 
now he has that going, and now he has several employees of his own. So, you know, I wanted to say something nice and let, you know, people who have been incarcerated that have come out, you know, there are opportunities, and, you know, Dr. Keisha and others are right. You can create your own opportunities. And so that's what I'm going to talk to Dr. Keisha about when I do reach out, um, you know, talk about incubators. But, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more offline right now. So, um, you know, just giving you all some information that's out here and what they're doing. And, of course, you have so, some people that are against. Go ahead, dear. I was going to say we need to get into the topic, though. Yeah, we yeah. do. We need to get into the topic. So, all right, we're getting ready to go and talk about some things here. I'm looking for my link, this one specifically. So last week we talked about, you know, profiteering and, you know, how white people profit from being white. You know, it's a investment as well as an investment. And so, you know, mm-hmm. um, you you have to go out and understand it. And, again, you know, I'll just go ahead and put it out here because, you know, I know some people are going to want to call in and play oppression Olympics, yeah, we know there are poor whites. We know that there are some disenfranchised white people. We know this because not all white is created equal. But you still have the advantage of benefiting from whiteness, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I found interesting when I was, you know, reading um, some of this information is that, you know, even within the white culture there, there's a hierarchy. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Always yeah, have yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'm trying to stop a couple of calls before they come in. We understand. Not all white is the same. So, so last week we talked a little bit about I mean, you how can't all stop the- those calls. If they're going to call, if they're going to call, if they're, if they're, if that's their mindset, that's their mindset. They're going to call regardless. It doesn't matter if you acknowledge that they're poor white people. Because at the end of the day, they don't want to, they don't want to own white privilege. So you can't control that. You know what I mean? So That is true. That is true, you know. And so it's just really interesting because um, James Baldwin said, the victim who is able to articulate the situation of the victim has ceased to be a victim. He or she has become a threat. Mm-hmm. Now, how about that for some words? But last week we talked about how, you know, a lot of this, you know, a lot of this comes from the state of Virginia. And so, you know, this is where a lot of this started in America. And we were talking about how, you know, the language of race started in Virginia around in the 1680s. And then it first appeared in 1691. And from that point forward, you know, whiteness was born to this country, because if you go back and you look at some of the stories, especially about some of the um, slaves that escaped, they would say, you know, a black slave, an Irish slave, a Dutch slave, you know, there was no such thing as white. They, They were recognized as being Irish, Dutch, Italian, Jewish, so on and so forth. So, you know, that is when you started seeing some of the transition. And so, you know, I just thought it was important that you guys go back because we mentioned it last week. We talked a little bit about it. But, yeah, you know, a lot of this nonsense starts in 
Virginia. And so, you know, at that time, that's when they made it so that white people, if you will, those that are part of that, you know, then diagram there, they were not able to be permanently enslaved. So that made them indentured servants. And generally, they would be indentured servants for about seven years and then be released. But it was also at that time that blacks became permanent slaves. Right. And we've talked about this on the show. Go back and listen to the archives. Go do some research because it's absolutely, you know, fascinating. And this is where, you know, the system where, you know, race came to existence. And so it's just, it's, it's you know, some examples of that, again, kind of going over a little bit from last week, housing segregation, you know, also called redlining. And we've talked about these white suburban enclaves that circle the inner city. That was done on purpose. You know, getting the VA loans or conventional loans or just the number of loans for, you know, for to purchase homes, you know, that was not made available to black people. And when it was, they were steered in certain directions. And, you know, even with some of the veterans, the black veterans that came back from the wars, you know, many of them were, you know, not given these particular loans. And so it's just interesting. So that's why when I tell people, when you hear them saying states' rights, you know, that's a trigger. You know, that's a cold word. And basically what happened was, and we talked about the New Deal and how those federal monies were pushed down to the states, and the states were able to administer that money. And while administering that program and the funding, they were able to systematically discriminate against people of color. So, again, when you hear the state's rights buzzword or trigger word, that is what it means. So, you know, um, we're going to talk about how some of this came, you know, to be. Because, again, when you're talking about the legal status of whiteness, um, you know, again, the law in Virginia in 1691 basically it banned black people or Negroes mulattoes and Indians from intermarrying with English or other white women. So, again, this is how they started defining, you know, whiteness or the qualities of whiteness and the fact that it needs to be protected. And Mm -hmm. even to this day, you see that happening in this country. I mean, you you know, uh, you know, there have been some examples as of late, that, whereas, you know, they felt they needed to protect their white damsels in distress, if you will. So, and there were a bunch of articles that came out. And, I mean, the biggest, you know, uh, um, example of that most recently is with that white supremacist domestic, you know, terrorist assassin in in South Carolina, you know, he said he's there to protect white women. You know, one of the things that he, you know, yelled out, and there were some white feminists that actually put out some articles saying, we don't need you to protect our white femininity or, you know, white women. I don't need you. So it was a lot that came out of that. But, you know, what I'm saying is that's still prevalent to this day. And so um, <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, you have people out here saying, you know, white is the new black, or you'll hear, um, you know, atheists are the new niggers, or, you know, I mean, just, you hear all of these things, but what people don't seem to understand is white is not the new black. 
and these two races have never been symmetrical, and they never will. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to understand it's like everybody wants to be black, but they don't want to go through the struggle, Raina. You know, how does that work? Yeah, so by claiming, by claiming that they're oppressed, they, you know, obviously they don't, you know, they basically uh, absolve themselves of, you know, any uh, involvement in, uh, you know, in, in oppression, you know. They can't say, they'll, they try to say, well, you know, I'm oppressed too, therefore, you know, right. I can't be involved. I can't be held responsible. Right. Yeah, those false equivalences, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's why I said it turns into the oppression Olympics. You know, and what's so funny is I posted an article on my wall from, you know, this white... Well, I don't think it turns into the oppression Olympics. I think it's just, I mean, I, I, I don't mm-hmm. think of that as the oppression Olympics. I basically just think of that as as white people trying to absolve themselves of their... Um, of their investment in racial oppression. Because they do benefit from it, you know, and they know Mm -hmm. they benefit from it. You know, Mm -hmm. what's ironic about all of that is they will continue to say that they do not benefit from it, but yet none of them are willing to give up any of the privileges that they know they benefit from. So, you know, they Mm want to say, oh, that's a shame, and that's not right, but I don't see anybody giving up their privileges. Right. So, you know, it's the whole thing is just, like I said, it's, it's ooh-wee. So, um, you know, again, sometimes I incorporate things that are happening in the secular community, you know, just to give examples. And, you know, basically, John Stewart, he made a comment about CPAC, which is the Conservative Political Action Conference, right? And they mm-hmm. have this every year, and he called it, the Festival of Whites, right? And so, you know, I thought it was funny when, you know, I I went and looked up the clip, and, you know, he just kind of slammed them. But, um, you know, that's that's another, you know, thing that I want to point out to people. Even with, you know, some of these organizations, you know, like CPAC and all of, and the Tea Party and Libertarians, you know, we got to throw them in there as well. They know exactly what they're saying and doing. And they know exactly what they're striving for, you know. And and what's interesting is you have them trying to play these, you know, Jedi mind tricks with people of color and tell us, you know, it's not about race, it's about class. You know, and that's one mm-hmm. of the more prominent arguments that I hear that is no longer about color because Obama was elected, so racism is gone you know, that we now live in a post-racial and colorblind society. And we know that not to be true. Right. And so, you know, it's just the whole thing. But, you know, here we go. I'm going to invoke the words of James Baldwin again because, you know, I'm just, I just love that man. You know, um, The Fire Next Time is one of my favorite books, period. So he said, James Baldwin, on being white, and other lies. You know, he argued that America had really no white community, only a motley alliance of European immigrants and their death descendants who made a moral choice, even if they didn't realize it, to join a synthetic racial elite. And in the mm-hmm. 1990s, 
a cohort of scholars took up Baldwin's charge, popularizing a field of research that came to be known as whiteness studies. This also includes white people against the wrong kind of white people, which basically were Northerners and Yankees. So, you know, this is, you know, Southern whites, you know, having bias towards Northern whites. And so, you know, again, we have whiteness studies out there. And so I just kind of wanted to give you all some information so you can go and look that up and and understand where it's coming from because, you know, 15 years ago, if you would have told me about whiteness studies and the study, I would have looked at you and laughed, you know, but it's the real thing, you know. And, again, as you, you know, you do better as you know better and get more educated on these types of uh, information. So for those of you that are looking for information about um, what we were talking about in Virginia, go back to the 1790 Naturalization Act and basically it gave citizenship or made it possible for any, quote-unquote, free white person of good character who had lived in America for at least two years. Then they were able to establish citizenship. So, I mean, you know, I know you're like, why are you putting all that out there? It's important for you to know. This is how we lead up into talking about how, you know, these European immigrants um, started, you know, being accepted as white in identity politics. And, you know, I've talked on the show about a lot of these things. But, yeah, go up and look up the, you know, the legal tradition behind the 1790 Naturalization Act. And, you know, even these types of situations went through the court system. And the judges had to determine if certain white people were considered white. And you can go and look up all the cases on that. It's a lot of information. Yeah, there's a story. There's one um, one particular court case where a woman, a black woman, um, or she was, you know, mixed race, but she... Um, she passed for white and she was basically made to strip in court so that she could be examined, you know, exactly. you know, and, and, you know, things like that. I mean, and it's just interesting, but, you know, it's a lot of that that's been happening. The judges had to determine what was white and who got to be white. And so, you know, you had people coming from all over the world. You had, you know, uh, Afghans and, you know, Armenians, Persians, Portuguese. And, you know, and basically, you know, the judges had to determine if these people were going to be part of the white Venn diagram. And so um, what's interesting is, you know, here it's talking about an immigration report from 1911, and it was a government commission that declared that Arabian or an Arab was by definition Caucasian. And basically, you know, some of today's politicians might want to appeal that, but, you know, it was just how the boundaries of whiteness have been stretched and, you know, how it expands to include, um, you know, some of these races. And when I talk about whiteness, you know, I talk a lot about Italians. And there is a reason for that because the Italians, especially in the southern region of Italy, they're dark. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy as to whether or not they wanted to include Italians, you know, as part of that, you know, white circle there. 
and, you know, they used to call Italians as well as Irish people and black people, they used to call them guineas. You know, that was a derogatory name. And so the Italians, they switched from Guinea to Guido. And so, you know, that's that's supposed to be an anti-Italian-American slur, but, you know, they co-opted it and now they own it, so it's no longer a slur in some people's eyes, even though I still consider it a slur. But, you know, again, it was just interesting when you go back and you look at that and, you know, see how all of this evolved. You know, in a lot of, of history, you know, most people don't know, Italians were being lynched. You know, there are a lot of stories out there, Italians, Latinos, um, Mexicans, you have the Filipinos. And if you go and you go back and read about some of the immigrant farm workers in California and how they were spraying chemicals on them and how they would lock them up and do these experiments on them in America. And a lot of the experiments that were performed in America allegedly this inspired the Germans, and they basically got a lot of their um, knowledge or inspiration, if you will, from America and what America did to immigrants in this country. And there were some books out about that, but go and look that up. Um, it's just it's, it's fascinating and sickening at the same time, but, you know, go out there. But, you know, again, with today's modern um you know, technology, you're able to get access to this information. Now, you know, I want to bring up Glenn Beck because not to. too long ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. I, you know, yeah. Because of his All Lives Matter march, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, and I mean, and what we try to explain to people is white has always been the default, and what we don't understand is when we say Black Lives Matter, you know, why is it that white people get so upset about that? And it's like because, I mean, it's it's a given. We are oppressed in this country, and, and we don't have anyone out there lobbying for us. We don't have any special interest groups out there, you know, lobbying for us. And it's it's like they become so upset when we talk about, you know, the oppression that's happening to us in this country. And they just Mm -hmm. want us to just stop, go away, and and get over it. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's just, you've seen the memes talking about, you know, they say, remember 9-11, remember the Holocaust, remember Pearl Harbor. But as far as slavery is concerned, get over it, get over yourselves. How does that work? So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Glenn, yeah, Glenn Beck, you know, and his crew there, basically he was talking about social justice and economic justice, which are, you know, basically cuss words in the conservative movement. You know, this is one of the reasons why you see in the secular community why it's so hard for social justice, you know, programs or activism, why it's, you know, basically being grounded because, you know, this community, the powers that be, most of them are conservative libertarians or conservative mm-hmm. republicans. And this is why social justice is like a bad word in this community. And that's why you have people like Michael Shermer writing articles saying that there is no wealth gap, no you know wealth inequality in this country. 
And so, and then what they do is they turn around when we talk about social justice and economic justice. They call it Marxist code words. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, basically trying to denigrate us by calling us Marxist or, you know, uh, socialist, in some cases communist, you know, and without saying it, if you will. And so, you know, this is happening throughout this country. And they know when they start talking about the red, you know, any type of, you know, McCarthyism, socialism, that it scares the American public. So these, again, are trigger words to try to crush any of these movements. And so, again, I think it's important for you guys to understand that and to know what they're saying when they, you know, make these statements, and especially, you know, the Tea Party, you know, and and it's just, you know, (laughs) what they're trying to do, and we all know the Tea Party, you know, what they're trying to achieve with that is um, a new social contract. And basically, you know, you'll hear them talking about jobs for white men. You know, that was the central thing for a while. And it still is part of their, you know, um, part of their nucleus and what they're trying to achieve. But they got tired of being called racist. So what they've been doing is they've been inviting black speakers and in inviting them to speak and, you know, trying to highlight them to prove that they're not racist. You know, and you see this in a lot of these different communities. I mean, even with the LGBTQ community and the secular community, you see it's the same behavior because, mm-hmm. again, whiteness is the default and whiteness is centered. And once we start talking about, you know, social justice, they're like, wait a minute, you're taking away from the white people. And that's how they see it. That's mm-hmm. how they see this situation. Um and, again, you know, even going back, you know, because I have to show you all the historical context of this in order for it to make sense, or at least for it to make sense to me, you know, because um, what Glenn Beck did in what he's doing with the marches and, you know, what he's trying to do is, you know, again, they're they're trying to say that they're not racist, that they're anti-racist, and, and that's because they have a few people that of color that are working with them and that, you know, and not realizing and admitting that, you know, with this political agenda they have, it's basically explicitly pro-white. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and this, that's documented. You know, when Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, he used to appeal to working class white voters, you know, and so he would use, you know, trigger words like states' rights. That I talked about earlier, welfare moms, quotas, and reverse racism. You're hearing that now, even with Donald Trump. You know, and, and some of these other ones. You have Ted Cruz, and you have Scott Walker, and you know all of these people. But they're using these, you know, these buzzwords. And also, you know, when you have someone like Scott Walker. Yes, yeah, Scott Walker. He's basically tearing down the union and trying to get rid of the unions, and the unions definitely benefited people of color. You know, again, one of well, the not three things. Yeah. yeah, not initially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to form our own, and we had to fight for it. That's why I was going to bring up Asa Philip Randolph. You know, guys, go and look him up. You know, and a number of others. I mean, you know, Lucy Parsons was also pro, um, pro-union as well. But, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, over the centuries, 
you know, this whiteness has been built and developed. And, you know, basically what it does is, is, is very deceitful. And it confuses a lot of people. And then what they try to do is disguise it as a political, you know, agenda or, you know, a political, you know, uh, um, political point that they're trying to make and that they're trying to push. But, you know, it's it's interesting because, again, it's an artificial category. You'll have white people argue with you saying that, you know, race is a social construct. So, yeah, it is a, a social construct, but they were the ones that constructed it, and they were the ones that gave it value. Mm-hmm. They created this hierarchy. We didn't. And so in order for, you know, all of these, you know, race issues to go away or to get better, they're going to have to do the work, you know, because I find it interesting how they point to people of color and tell us that we're having these racial issues or racial strife because we keep bringing up race and that it's our fault, you know. And so, you know, again, yes, it is a social construct, but they were the ones that constructed it and they were the ones who gave it value. You know, and so it's just, you know, it's interesting. Um, when we start talking about white culture, you know, some people get offended, but it is a culture. They've created a culture. And so, it's, you know, and, and especially in America, that's one thing that I must say is when people come from other countries to America, you know, there is some confusion. And that's why I said it's confusing because, you know, in a lot of these other countries, you know, I won't say that they don't have racial issues. I'll just say it's not the same type of racial issues that we have here, you know. And so are you okay, Raina? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, it's just interesting. But, yeah, you know, um, when you start observing, you know, white privilege or whiteness, you know, you'll see. You'll see. And when you start talking about it, people get upset. And they want, you know, they treat it as though we're making an accusation. And we're not. When we talk about whiteness, we're not talking about an accusation. We're not making accusations. It's just this is, you know, there are part facts. of life. <laughs> there are facts that yeah. you have to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, the whole thing is, like I said, interesting. When you start looking at it and you start trying to talk about it, and, you know, how it all comes about. But, you know, I'm just like, you know, it, it, you have a lot of benefits from it, especially legal benefits. You know, and, and again, if you're white, back when, back in the 1690s and all of that, you were unenslavable. You know, and so, you know, that was a reward on its own. But even now, you know, I've seen when you go and you look at the statistics, you'll see you know, um, basically, you know, some of the same charges against a black and a white person, the black person will serve more jail time. And so it's just interesting. Um, David Rodiger, R-O-E-D-I-G-E-R, he published a volume called Towards the Abolition of Whiteness. And so what he was doing was, you know, with this, he was, you know, paying attention to unions, strikes, and he traced the unsteady growth of American whiteness, a category that eventually included 
many previous identities that had once been considered marginal, and that would be Irish, Italian, Polish, Jewish, and we got to throw Dutch in there too. You know, and he said here, it is not merely that whiteness is oppressive and false. It is that whiteness is nothing but, yeah, is nothing but oppressive and false. He wrote, whiteness describes from Little Bighorn to Simi Valley, not a culture, but precisely the absence of culture. It is the empty and therefore terrifying attempt to build an identity based on what isn't and on whom one can hold back. In his view, fighting racism wasn't enough. White people who wanted to oppose oppression would have to do battle with whiteness itself. Nearly two decades later, amid a rancorous debate over our first black president, the idea of abolishing whiteness seems no less tantalizing and no less remote. How about that? And Mm -hmm. so... um, Nell Irvin Painter, which I'm going to post to YouTube of her later, but she talks about the story of Charles Jansen, a British businessman who came to America in 1793 and sometime during his 13-year visit offended a white domestic worker asking to speak to her master. And her response was, I have no master, adding, I'd have you to know, man, that I am no servant, none other None but niggers are servants. And Jansen was shocked by the arrogance of domestics in this land of Republican liberty and equality. You know, shocked that by, you know, by a country where even the maids had something to be proud of and someone to be prouder than. Mm-hmm. You know, and that speaks volumes. That definitely speaks volumes. But. You know, again, we want you guys to go out and do some research because what happens is when they incorporate these cultures into the white circle, you know, basically, and that's why I read that last example from Nell Painter, because um, basically, you know, uh, (laughs) when you have poor whites, you know, and, and you tell them that they're better than, you know, the best nigger, you know, that instills, you know, some type of pride. But it also creates the situation, you know, that we're dealing with, you know, in this country now. And, I mean, if you go back, you know, you'll see that social scientists have documented, you know, these patterns of racial discrimination against people of color in a number of different markets, you know, especially the, you know, the labor market. And that, you know, you have men out here, you know, of high school white men with high school degrees, you know, basically interviewing for the same job as a as a black person or a person of color with a degree. And then they get it. You know, white men with felonies will receive the same interview and still be, you know, hired for that job, even if a black man with no record applied for it. And you see a lot of this. Um you know, there was a study at the University of Chicago. And um, like I said, go out there, you know, read some of this. Read, you know, some of the things that, you know, have been happening. And, you know, and going back to Virginia, and they had a Virginia's Race Integrity Act of 1924. And basically what it did, it codified the one-drop rule as the standard race, racial classification for people of mixed ancestry. 
a person with even one drop of non-white ancestry was considered as colored or non-white. So, again, that's Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924. What is going on in Virginia, Raina? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but, you know, I have no idea. Know. Okay. Um, I'll be right with you. I have to take care of something really fast. I'll be right back, okay? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Right. And so, I mean, I'm just looking at this, you know, throw out a tidbit that's not really part of the conversation, but it's something you need to know anyway. You know, Native Americans were granted the right to vote in 1924. You know, we don't talk a lot about, you know, what happens to the Native Americans. Well, when I say we, I'm talking about this country as at large. I do talk about um, Native American issues there. But, yeah, they weren't granted the, what, the right to vote until 1924. And so, you know, um, in 1917, the Asiatic Bard Song Act, also known as the Immigration Act of 1917, and, you know, Woodrow Wilson vetoed it, but, you know, Congress, they overrode it. So um, basically what happened was this is some legislation essentially prevented immigration from British India to the U.S., you know, and it had loopholes which exempted whites from the region from being denied admission to the U.S. You know, and that's, you know, one of the, you know, benefits, you know, white privilege benefits. And if you want to know more about that case, you can just go to the United States versus Bhagat Singh Tend. So B-H-A-G-A-T-S-I-N-G-H-T-H-I-N-D. And so this is about, you know, um, people seeking, um, you know, seeking to come to the United States and citizenship. So, you know, um, it's interesting. There's another article that came out this week, and I'm going to post it. And the title of it is, you know, if you're white, science says you're probably a racist. Now what? And so I'm going to post that a little later because I think it's important that, you know, you all see what's happening. But in regards to, you know, white identity politics in America, what's interesting is, you know, with Asians and what they've tried, you know, they've discriminated quite a bit against Asians. And that's why we brought up last week with Jeff Bush and Donald Trump with, you know, they were talking about anchor babies. And, again, anchor babies, I guess those are the new crack babies. But they said they were talking about the Asians and not necessarily the Latinos. And what's interesting is is that what they do to promote anti-blackness and to basically um, recruit other cultures and races to continue to perpetuate the anti-blackness, what they do is try to pit one race or one culture against each other. And so what they were doing for a while, and they still do it today, they try to say that the Asians are the model minority. Now, there are quite a few Asians out there that reject this, that understand, you know, what's happening and how, you know, having that particular title is anti-blackness, and we'll be talking about that next week. That'll be part three, anti-blackness, and we'll be talking about that from a global standpoint. But, you know, again, with that, you know, model minority, it's, you know, what they do is they say the Asians come to this country and they build businesses and they do well and, you know, they're, they study hard and then they try to turn that point to, you know, black people and Latino people and say, well, 
what's your problem? They did it. Why can't you? And, you know, what I find refreshing is that I see a lot of Asian people rejecting this because, you know, not only is it not fair to other people of color to be put in that position, whereas, you know, you have people comparing you, it's also unfair to them because it places, you know, this type of responsibility on them. As a matter of fact, you know, there have been some controversy in court cases as of late whereas the white people were upset because, you know, certain elite, you know, colleges and universities, you know, had a large Asian student body. And, you know, a lot of white people were feeling as though they were being discriminated against. And so it's just interesting. You know, when you go back and you look at that, and, I mean, even with the court case with the young woman from Texas, and I forget her name, I apologize, but how she wasn't, you know, accepted into, you know, a university in Texas, and she believed it was because of, you know, the black people and the acceptance of black. And this went all the way to the Supreme Court. But what she fails to realize is that, you know, a lot of these programs, you know, the um, EEO and um, affirmative action, all of that was created for white people, particularly white women, which is why they benefit the most from it. But, again, the whole story isn't being put out here. You know, and, again, it goes back to that anti-blackness. If you ask people, the average person, who, you know, who are the people that benefit from welfare the most, they'll point and say black people, and that's not true. There are more white people on welfare than black people. I mean, just go and look at the studies, look at the statistics. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's outrageous. But, again, you know, by them saying that the Asians are a model minority, you know, um, you know, in, in trying to model themselves on Asian culture, again, that is when it turns into white identity politics. And it doesn't matter what the intent is. It just turns into white identity politics. So it's important that we start recognizing what they're doing when, when they make these types of charges. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you have people here in in this country yelling for diversity or multiculturalism. And, you know, you have to look at it from a historical context to see, you know, how this became the situation that it's now become. And, you know, again, it's white identity politics. It's not a new idea. It's not a new concept. It's been here. And so, again, this is how the European immigrants, how they became white. And so, you know, like I said, I want you guys to go out and do some, you know, some uh, research on this, you know, because, it's bad science to begin with. Let's start with that. And, um, you know, if you go and you pick up the book by Nell Painter, The History of White People, um, it's actually a phenomenal book. You know, I've been able to read a part of it. Because, I mean, I have it on my tablet, but I haven't had a chance to read the entire book. But, you know, um, it will make you look at history in a new way. It, it will put some things in perspective. Things will start making more sense as to how this developed and how it's continual, you know, how it's still perpetuated. So, you know, and, and it talks about the history of the, you know, the idea of the white race. 
and you know how it's a social construct and it's it's actually very complicated. See, a lot of people that are offering these solutions, you know, they're offering a simple solution to a very complicated matter. And so, you know, telling us to not talk about race and it'll go away, that's not true. And then also there are laws and policies in place. And this is why you hear us talking about systemic and institutionalized racism. It's written into the laws. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, this is one of the things that we're talking about when we say that we need people to look at this, you know, from a more macro, you know, point of view. You know, because it's written into the laws, it's put in policies, and, you know, in some cases there's enough ambiguity that people can just interpret it the way that they want. And that's usually not to our benefit. So, you know, it's interesting because, you know, even with, you know, the hierarchy of whiteness, you know, basically, you know, they, they in some cases pit white people against other white people. When you sit back and you look at, you know, how all of this, you know, came about, um, you know, and in her book, you know, Miss Painter, she said that um, she was talking about the evolution of the concept of whiteness from ancient Rome. And she was pointing out that their slaves were largely white and how to the 21st century America and, and, and the era of Obama, how our once narrow concept of whiteness has become at once far broader and less important than ever before. And so it's just mm-hmm. interesting because, you know, she was talking about the elevation of the Germans and the Scandinavians as wider than others. And so, you know, and how this is bad science, and it went back to some scientists you know, who shared, I guess they had an obsession with both measuring people's skulls and pinpointing the world's most beautiful people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just interesting. What is one of those people called crane, craniologists or something like that? Um, um, yeah, I mean, and then, of course, yes. there's this uh, the study of phrenology and stuff. A lot of a lot of really bad science has come out of white people trying to prove that they are the best or the whitest. You know, a lot of bad science has come out of that. You know, I mean, not exactly. and I say science, I'm using the word science loosely, obviously, because those right. those uh, those fields were discredited, obviously. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you know. Uh, <laughs> It's just interesting. Um, you know, it was a, a young man, I forget. I have to go and look that up. But um, it's been a number of books and a number of studies regarding, you know, race and the importance of it in America and, you know, why you have other countries like France and, you know, how they, you know, the racial issues that they have in their country they refuse to take America's lead or, you know, use America as an example because they've seen what a clusterfuck has turned into in this country. And so, yeah, you know, go back and, you know, look some of this up because the Human Genome Project found that there is no genetic basis for racial difference. And so, you know, yeah, you have that out there, and then people want to say, see, there's no such thing as racism. We're post-racial, you know, we're colorblind. We elected Obama. But, again, that doesn't change the laws. Mm -hmm. 
You know, and so, you know, this is what we're trying to stress to people. It's far more complicated than what most people realize. You know, there are, all, there are always going to be people that have hate in their heart for other races or anybody that's different than themselves. However, we need to start attacking these policies because, and then we also have to make sure that we continue to educate our children and, and the public as far as, you know, what's happening and, you know, why certain things have transpired because, you know, this will continue to happen over and over, and you know, unless we get, you know, get everything under control and get this mm-hmm. under control and start making some real progress. And see, and that's the thing, you know, I've heard some white people say, well, we gave them the Civil Rights Act, you know, why aren't they happy? You know, the Civil Rights Act from the 60s. But what a lot of people don't seem to understand is, yes, there was a Civil Rights Act, but there was also wording put in it so that any gain that we may have received, you know, it was lessened by, you know, something that was taken away. So in all actuality, we did not really make any real progress. And so, again, that's why I'm pointing the finger at some of these so-called black leaders or the black political elite in this country, because if they had the answers and they've known the answers all the time, why haven't they implemented it? You know, but instead they've been, you know, battening their pockets and, you know, trying to sell their books and a number of other things. But, you know, I just find it, you know, insulting and offensive that now that you have, you know, young people out here with a new movement that they want to come in and say that we know better. Well, if you know better, why didn't you do better? Mm-hmm. This is what I don't understand. But, again, for for some of them, you know, they've been bought off, period. There's no other way to put it. They've been bought off. And, you know, they're for their own good, not necessarily what's good for, you know, people of color that have been oppressed in this country. And so, again, you know, look some of this information up, you know, is is absolutely fascinating. Now, this is fascinating. You know, and when we're talking about whiteness, you know, that's, you know, a whiteness studies is interesting because that's what Tim Wise claims when he talks about, you know, racial issues, that he's talking about whiteness. But yet he takes a lot of the information that was given in, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears from a lot of, you know, black people, namely black women, who have been out here fighting this fight and died poor and destitute while they're enriched. You know, you know, he makes good money talking about whiteness if you will, Rachel Dolezal, you know, she's getting ready to make some big money. You know, and she, she, you know, she gave us performative art. So I'm like, you know, you know, if, if that, if she had been a black person acting like she was white and, and, you know, passing for white, do you think she would have gotten the same type of reception, Raina? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, no, I don't believe so. Yeah, I mean, so. probably. I mean, probably no one would have cared. You know, I mean, to be honest, you know, I mean, it probably wouldn't have come out like that. I mean, probably would have been some people talking about it, but it wouldn't have been 
national news, you know? Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I want you to go look up these books. I'm going to post the link later on, and it talks about how the Irish became white. And this is from Art McDonald. And, you know, it just shows you uh, how all of this came about. Um, You know, I know I posted a while ago about the Melungeons. And, you know, I may post something about them again, how they were passing for white, particularly Portuguese, um, in Mm -hmm. order for them to be enslaved. So you have a lot of examples out there. I'm going to post an article talking about affirmative action for whites, you know, and, you know, we've talked about this. And if you all go into the archives, you'll find a lot of shows that we've done, you know, talking about these particular topics. And I'm actually rather proud of our archives, you know, and the growth that we've made. So, um, yeah, it's it's just interesting. Um, Um, I want to post that. Cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to get ready to go, um, but it was great being on the show as usual. So. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Ray. Uh, <laughs> Not Dr. Ray yet, just Ray. <laughs> and even even after, just Ray, just call me Ray. <laughs> All right, Doc. So, <laughs> anyway, I'm just bye. Crying. I'm just I proud of you, are. baby. You know that. You know that. You know that. I know. Thanks. All right, Thanks. honey. Well, um, make sure you call me later, okay? I will. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. So, you know, again, you know, it's another book out there. It's called Reinventing the Melting Pot. And like I said, a lot of these you can read, you know, quite a bit of the information on Google Books, you know, so you can read it without the obligation of buying it so you can see if it's something that, you know, that you would have an interest in. And so it's just interesting because in this particular book, um, they were talking about European immigrants of the late 19th and early 20th century and how they were concerned with economic survival and better living conditions and how they were also caught up in the identity politics. You know, you know, and, and it's, it's just interesting um, how this came about, political machines that you see in a lot of, cities like Chicago, you know, you hear when people talk about the politics in Chicago, they're talking about the machine, you know, and it just, it goes all the way back, you know, and how, you know, a lot of these big political machines, how how when they were seeking the votes of the new immigrants, you know, they would um, just give them things, offer them things for their votes, like free coal and, you know, Thanksgiving turkeys and jobs, you know, so patronage jobs at, you know, city agencies and municipal agencies. I mean, you know, this goes way back, you know, and in New York City as well as Chicago and many other uh, major cities, you know, the you know the immigrants from Ireland, the Irish, they often got the jobs at the police departments and the fire departments. You know, and Eastern European Jews, they dominated public school teaching, and Italians took over sanitation. You know, and so, you know, what was happening as, you know, ethnic votes grew, you know, the machines, you know, presented voters with what they call a balanced slate. And so it was just interesting how all of this 
came about, you got to read this history because it's fascinating. And it will answer a lot of your questions. And, and most importantly, it's a weapon because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of white people in this country, they're living, you know, a history that they don't understand. Many of them do not understand history. They don't understand where a lot of these things came from. All they know is that this is how it always was, and this is what they came to expect, which is why you have people like the Tea Partiers out there talking about, you know, jobs for white people, particularly white men, because, you know, at one point that was pretty much a guarantee. And it it was just, just interesting because... You know, you have to listen to the code words. You got to pay attention. You have to understand where, you know, a lot of where a lot of this came from. You know, and so it's just it's absolutely amazing um, when they're talking about the immigrants, the European immigrants, and how they were just you know brought into these circles because they wanted the benefits. And that goes back to something that I stated earlier about how some people want. You know, they 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 want to they want to be black. They love black culture, but they don't want to struggle. And I just laugh because nobody has given up their privileges. That's not going to happen. And this is why you know we're talking about you know, in some cases you're not going to change a person's heart. You're not going to change their you know their way of thinking. You know, we're not the thought police. But if we go in and we change systems, then you know, some attitudes start to change. We won't have a choice but to change, you know. And some people, you know, again, they'll hold on, you know, until the to the grave, you know. And it was just interesting because I remember when Oprah um, made a comment about, you know, the racists in this country, and she said, basically, we just have to wait until they die off. And um, needless to say, they were not happy about hearing her say this, you know, and it's just interesting because, again, America is supposed to be this melting pot. And look at what you're seeing today. You know, you're seeing anti-immigrant, you know, um, rallies and marches and sentiments and all of that. You know, when this was a country of immigrants, at least that's what it started out as. And when you have people like Donald Trump and, you know, Ted Cruz and Rick Perry and Scott Walker and a number of other ones, but in particular, you know, Donald Trump saying that he's going to build these walls and he's appealing to, you know, um, you know, people's biases and people's fear. And that's what we've talked about on this show, you know, how fear sells. You know, that's why every other commercial is about having an alarm system or having a button that you can wear on a necklace around your your neck. And so, I mean, you know, fear sells in this country. And it's just amazing because I remember when they were talking about the browning of America and how white people started losing their minds. And with the election of Barack Obama, you know, a lot of these white nationalist groups, you know, came, you know, their membership group. And new groups, you know, popped up. And so, yeah, you know, if you all get a chance to read The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, you know, and how white people profit from it, in Chapter 3 it's talking about immigrant labor and identity politics. 
and it's actually a really good book. It talks about, you know, um, a lot of, you know, the legalities behind this. And, you know, it has a section at the beginning talking about Proposition 187 and, you know, and how people, you know, basically had no intention of giving up the benefits that they derived from, you know, the unregulated low-wage work performed for them by immigrant agricultural laborers, you know, short order cooks, porters, bellhops, janitors, pool cleaners, domestic servants, gardeners, and construction workers. And see, and that's the thing. That's what I'm talking about when I say the privileges, you know, or benefits. And so it's just, you know, it's important that you guys know this information. It's very important that you go back. Um, You know, it, it just talks about, you know, how they are taking advantage of vulnerable populations and how, you know, a lot of communities of color, namely black people and Latino people and indigenous people, were scapegoated. We are scapegoated in a lot of situations. And, you know, this is why it's important to get the information out there. And what's interesting is, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm black, if you haven't figured that out, and I've been black for a long time. And, you know, what I've seen is, and I used to be one of these people, and the more you educate yourself, the more knowledgeable, knowledgeable you become, some of your viewpoints start to change. And I was one of those people out there that would be like, well, you know, if they worked harder or went to school, and things would be better. You know, but then I lived a little. And then I opened my eyes and I started seeing things. And I started reading. You know, but experience is the teacher. And, you know, things are not necessarily black and white, cut and dry. And so it's just it's important. It's very important that you guys go and, you know, read and find out and understand. Because, you know, I can honestly say that, you know, by studying and reading this, it's actually made me a more compassionate person. You know, and and it's just, it's crazy. You know, but, yeah, they're scapegoating immigrants right now. You know, I have a special love for you know, some of the immigrants coming in this country because they're being scapegoated. And what's happening to them is what happened to us. And it hasn't stopped happening to us. You know, we're still being scapegoated. You know, and, you know, this is why it's important that we work together, that, you know, you have, you know, all of these different cultures and races, that we work together, we'll get a lot more done. You know, and, you know, when they talk about these undocumented workers in this country, what a lot of people don't understand is that they pay more in taxes than they receive in services. You know, and it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. And when people call them illegal immigrants, I find that offensive, personally. I find them, find that offensive. And, you know, you have these people taking advantage of them you know, and paying them no wages or very, very low wages. And we talked about how when affirmative action, well, basically the New Deal, when the New Deal was implemented, how, you know, agrarian or farm workers and domestic workers, how they were omitted from being able to get Social Security as well as unemployment. 
You know, some changes have been made over the years, but if you go back and you look at the history, you'll see that. And who were those people? Those were primarily black people, Latino people, and a lot of people don't understand when when the slaves were emancipated in this country, you know, over 150 years ago, basically what happened is they started bringing Chinese people to this country as slaves. You know, a lot of people don't know that. You got to go back and read the history and understand the history. It was something in some of my notes, but I guess I got them mixed up. But in some of my notes, it was talking about how, you know, even now, you know, Chinese people are discriminated against. And it's just interesting because you hear these, you know, these different stories. But when you hear about these large corporations going overseas, let me tell you how this works. If the company or that department is in the red, meaning losing money, they leave those departments in the United States. If a department is extremely profitable, they move them overseas so that they don't have to pay taxes on them. And they go to poor countries like China and India. That is the reason behind so they don't have to pay taxes, but in addition to that, they have slave labor. You know, and... I'm just, there's just so much to this. There's just so much to this that it's just as important that you guys go out and that you read and you understand what's happening and how they're pitting us against one another. And I just thought it was important for you all to also know that there is a hierarchy in whiteness as well. And I'm just laughing because my answer to all of that is basically the only real white people in this country are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That's it. Jewish people, Italian, Irish, Polish, Dutch, you all are not authentically white people. You're honorary white people. And I know that upsets some people when I say that, but it's true. They call you ethnic whites. So, I mean, it's just interesting, you know, how all of this has transpired over the years. But, again, um, (laughs) you know, white supremacy in and of itself is, you know, continuing to be perpetuated by honorary white people. That is part of the contract. That is part of that social contract that, you know, they keep, people and the Latinos and the other marginalized groups that they keep us in line. And as long as they keep us in line, they can continue being honorary ethnic white folks and receive benefits, receive the privileges. That is how this works. And, you know, it's a lot more to it. And, you know, again, you know, time, you know, we only have so much time. But that's why I tell you guys the names of these books, to kind of steer you in the right direction. And, you know, again, we talked about capitalism. And I'm going to actually do a three-part series on capitalism um, from the half that has never been told. It's going to come from that book. And I got a great phone call last week from, you know, Mr. Warren, and he was talking about how some of my ancestors, well, basically the white family that owned my family, how there's a part in that particular book talking about the family that owned my family was actually the Henson family that owned the bills. So, you know, I've been learning a lot about that history, Mr. Warren, and 
and Miss Nettie, they've been giving me some information, and I appreciate it. I really do thank them for that because, you know, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. And so, yeah, let me tell you about the next few shows. So next week is the third part of the White Identity Politics series, and we're going to be talking about anti-blackness. And, you know, we'll be talking about that from a global standpoint and, you know, how, you know, it basically feeds into capitalism. It fuels it because capitalism, you know, is tethered to racism. And, you know, we're going to break some of that down. But, you know, if you really want to know about a lot of this, go get that book, The Half That Has Never Been Told. You know, I have the e-book of it. But um, I'm going to do a three-part series on that, you know, a few weeks from now. But we're going to do the next two shows after part three, Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. And it's going to be a two-part series, and we're going to talk about the New Deal extensively and talk about how basically how black people went from being Republicans and voting for the Republican Party and started voting for the Democratic Party, how that switch happened. We're going to talk about the Dixiecrats. We're going to talk about Southern strategy. We're going to talk about all of that and how initially, well, you know, even now you have some blacks that felt that the New Deal was beneficial to us but not so much, in, in, so we're going to talk about that. So that's going to be a two-part series. After that, we're going to talk about the Liberty Party. So that's going to be a one-part show, just one part talking about the Liberty Party, if you all want to get a head start and look it up. And then after that, we'll be talking about black humanists, free thinkers, um, black atheists, and their role in the socialist, labor, and communist movements in America. So it's going to be a two-parter. Of course, we're going to talk about my hero, Hubert Henry Harrison. We're going to talk about Asa Philip Randolph. We're going to talk about just a number of people, um, John G. Jackson, Lucy Parsons, um, and the list goes on, you know, and in their roles in this. And so, um, yeah, we're going to be talking about it from, you know, um, a humanist, free thinker, you know, standpoint, you know, and their roles in history because a lot of that history has been suppressed, you know. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be exciting. So that's going to be a two-parter. And then after that, we're going to talk about capitalism, and that's going to be a three-part series. I have a show that I archive that I'm going to release because I know I'm going to want a Sunday off somewhere in between here. And so it's talking about, you know, the black church, the black secular community, and social justice. And so when I decide to take one of these Sundays off, what I'll do is I'll just post that, like on a Saturday, and then you all can listen to it then, and I'll tell you that, you know, I'm taking that Sunday off. So... A lot more to come. I want to thank Dr. Keisha for calling in, and the name of her website is thenewblackcodes.com. Again, thenewblackcodes.com. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, creating, you know, industry, creating jobs, creating, you know, um, a black credit union to get around a lot of that redlining. And, see, you know, what's beautiful about that is it's like it's, it, it kind of, you know, if you're really interested, there's a lot of history here. 
there's a lot of history here, and this is why we have to create our own industries, create our own businesses. And, you know, it's something that, you know, wow. You know, I just, like I said, when she was talking and Raina was talking, just a new idea popped into my head about, um, you know, what can be done and how we can capitalize off of that to help our own communities. And so I just think it's a beautiful thing. So, you know, again, we're going to wrap it up, you know, but, man, this was, you know, really good. And like I said, go and look at the questions that I put there. And, you know, I was talking about the black political elite, and one of the questions that I posed is basically are the black political elite overseers, you know, profiting from telling poor and working class blacks to forget about, you know, these transgressions, you know, against us and 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 to go and go home and pray. Go home and pray about it. And that's what I find so beautiful about, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement is the fact that it is not centered in religion. It is not centered in religion. And like I said, I went to the conference in Cleveland and, you know, it was just it was a beautiful experience. So if you all get a chance you know, next year when you have the next one, you get a chance to, you know, participate, please do. It's well worth it, well worth it. And so on that note, we're getting ready to close this down. But, again, like I said, go out and look up a lot of this information, you know, educate some other folks, particularly white people, because there's a lot of people, white people that do not know the history of this country, do not know the history of their particular race or culture. So it's important, um, you know, and, it's, and I'll just throw out a couple of names out here that you all may want to go, and like I said, Nail Painter, um, and I was talking about Asian Americans, you know, go and look up Lisa Lowe, L-O-W-E, Lisa Lowe. And she's an Asian American studies scholar. And, you know, she has a lot of information out there that talks about, you know, these different racist stereotypes, you know, and how they're not just picturesque untruths, but carefully constructed images designed to make lies more attractive than true, you know, and that's across the board. And I'll repeat that again. You know, these very successful racist stereotypes are not just picturesque untruths, but carefully constructed images designed to make lies more attractive than true. So, you know, go out there and look up Nell Painter. Um, you know, even um, Jeffrey Perry, Dr. Jeffrey Perry, we had him on the show. Go back and listen to that. And he was talking about a book, The Invention of the Right of the white race, the invention of the white race. And, you know, he gave a lot of information. And, of course, he was talking about Hubert Henry Harrison, which, you know, made me happy. But it's a lot of information out there. And so, yeah, Dr. Jeffrey Perry. So if you want, you can get a head start. Go back to our archives, and you'll see that. You'll see, I think the title is um, The Invention of the right, White Race and Hubert Henry Harrison or Hubert Henry Harrison and the Invention of the White Race. But that was a very important show, and I'm very proud of that show. A lot of information was, um, you know, disseminated in that show. And so, again, um, go up and look up um, Immigrant Labor and Transnational Capital, okay? Again, that's Immigrant Labor and Transnational 
you know, and so, you know, read it to that, and it'll talk about, you know, how the rhetoric out here is demonizing low-wage workers for crossing, you know, boundaries and coming into the U.S., and, you know, gives a lot of information on that. So go and look it up. Look it up. Look it up. And so, again, this is Black Free Thinkers. My name is Kimberly Veal. Thank you for listening. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And once again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So next week is the last part, and we will be talking about anti-blackness from a global, you know, viewpoint. But, of course, it's going to be primarily about anti-blackness in the United States. But I want to show how this is happening, you know, around the world and how capitalism, you know, how, how you know, it continues to grow and this anti-blackness continues to fuel it. So on that note, we are out of here, you guys. Enjoy your weekend. Please enjoy the archives. I've been looking at the archive numbers, the hits. Thank you so very much. And I want you to know that I appreciate each and every one of you. You guys take care and have a lovely week. Bye-bye. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.